Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, and more. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad. Thank you for listening. All right. Hey, hey, we're here with the Lit Review. Um, Today we're sitting in um, my apartment in Rogers Park. Uh, So thank you all for coming across the entire city (laughs) to be with me. Um, This is episode number 25. We are here today actually with um, the first Mexicana Latinx uh, woman on our show. So I'm really excited. It's my people. We're here with Corina Pedraza. And we're here to talk about Steel Barrio, the great Mexican migration of South Chicago. This is super exciting for me because I'm from South Chicago. Karina is from South Chicago. So this is just like, when I saw this book, I was so excited about it. Um, I read it a long time ago. So um, I think it's a really interesting book to talk about right now, especially with everything happening with DACA um, and our in the horrible he who shall not be named. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this is going to be a really exciting book um but yeah hey Paige how are you doing today hey y'all I'm good I'm better yeah. officially all the way Yay. yeah <laughs> awesome Paige is better we're both better no more sickness mm-hmm. um so yeah welcome Karina welcome to the show hi you all Yay. thanks for having me yes um so something we like to ask our guest is um who you are what do you do and why but I just like am so honored that you're on this show. You know, you're such an inspiration. You're such an amazing community organizer um, with roots in the Southwest Youth Collaborative, um, doing organizing with them. Um, I remember seeing your name in uh, the Ella's Daughters a long time ago. <laughs> um, and I was like, I want to be an Ella's daughter. Yeah. So I, I was like always just like seeing your name everywhere and being really excited about you and the work that you do. So thank you so much. So, yeah. Who are you? What are you doing? Why? Hey, thank you, Monica. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm Corina Pedraza, and um, I was born and raised in the community of South Chicago, which is where the book takes place and what it's about. Um, I am a mom of two super energetic kiddos <laughs> that keep me very busy. Uh, I also work for uh, Chicago Public Library. I'm a library associate at the Thomas Hughes Children's Library, which is a children's library inside the Harold Washington Library Center. Um, and I'm a member of Mi Gente, which is, yeah, shout out, uh, the new political hub for Latinx and Chicanx folks across the country. Um, and I'm a full-blown baseball mom <laughs> um, that uh, carries her kids around to practices and games and all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, like you said, my um, political home here in Chicago is the Southwest Youth Collaborative, where I worked for many years. Um, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, a long time ago now. (laughs) Wow. Um, And yeah, they were kind of like the place where I learned more about community building and organizing and and movement building. And it's such a special, special place in our hearts. And um, just like the roots, it's like it anchors me um, here in the city, uh, my close relationships to 
not just the collaborative, but to like the Arab American Action Network. Like those people are my fam and we, you know, roll hard for each other. Um, but it just brought me close to like a ton of folks, the, the folks from OCAD, our Organizing Communities Against Deportation, Rosy Carrasco and Martin Unzueta, I met them in the early 90s uh, doing immigrant rights work and Tanya Unzueta, their daughter, I've known for many years. Um, and it just provided me with a, a strong uh, uh, base of like what community building is and how, and what organizing is and how it's not just about like how many people you can get to a march, right? But it's like the day-to-day -day work of, of making sure our young folks have basic human rights, right? Like have good schools, have things to eat, have a roof over their head. Um, it was real integral in, in teaching me about like the importance of culture, right? And so we would have like University of Hip Hop was uh, a program that was there, anchored there. And so like you could go in in the afternoon and see like a three-year-old girl break dancing and then like her 14-year-old brother was there and then like their 30-something-year-old dad was still like, yeah, I got the moves still, let me teach y'all, right? Um, but it, it just was really like instrumental and like, like this is how we roll, this is what building community is, this is like how critical these kind of spaces are where like you could do graffiti on the outside of the building, you could, um, you have the space and the resources to, to do art that reflects our roots and our political work and, and our history. So, so yeah, that's my political home, but I'm kind of all over the city now and trying to support different um, organizing work that's happening. So the book is Steel Barrio, The Great Mexican Migration of South Chicago, 1950 to 1940. Can you tell us what's this book about? Walk us through it. Um, so it's pretty much in the title, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's really about how the uh, Mexican community in South Chicago um, came to be, how um, it grew. Um, it goes really extensively into um, like the housing and, and how people arrived here, why Mexicanos came to that community. Um, but then also covers just like um, everything that they did during those years to make sure they survived and thrived as a community. So it touches on um, like how they got, how, how they secured housing. Um, it talks about like the newspapers and, and how the newspapers were instrumental in informing that community. Um, it even talks about baseball and I was like, yeah, baseball and sports. Um, so it, yeah, it talks about the sports club that they organized um, and really like I think for folks who are not from South Chicago, I like, well, why would I read this, right? <laughs> well, first they're like, where is South Chicago, right? They're like, like there's no South Chicago. There, or there's no, especially the east side. They'll be like, that's a lake. And yeah, yeah, They're yeah. like, no, that's where pe a lot of people live. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, or they're like, you're from the South Side? And I'm like, well, the South Chicago is in the South Side. But then I have to go through the whole, like, this is where we're located. Um, but those of us that are from South Chicago, um, I, um, it's, it holds a special place in our hearts, right? Like we roll hard for that area, that community. We're proud of it. And um, this book, I think, really gives light to like how that community came to be, um, how it grew, uh, the impact it had on, um, on politics, uh, the impact it had on sort of the immigrant rights movement that was happening in the early 2000s. 
Okay, so as the person in this little triangle that has not read the book, I, I, one of the things that stands out to me are the dates, 1915 to 1940. Is there a reason why it's that window of time? Like, what was going on before 1915? What happened in 1940? Was that when most migrants were going through? Like, what, what's, why that time period? Well, I think it's really interesting to read about it because I think now when folks think about the Latinx or, or Mexicano community in Chicago, they think Little Village, they think Pilsen, right? And now, like, Albany Park area has grown tremendously. Um, but I think it's really critical to understand that Mexicanos have been in Chicago for a hell of a long time. Like, and so in the book, it really talks about how it is that folks started coming in 1915, like escaping some of the stuff that was hap happening in Mexico with the Mexican Revolution, um, with like the economic disparity in Mexico. And then it goes through that time period right leading up to the Great Depression. Um, and because of the, the growth, industrial growth of the city, right, the formation of like the railroad industry, the steel industry. Um, and so for folks who don't know South Chicago, um, it's like, the way I explain it is, it, many folks know where Rainbow Beach is, which is like for some folks like the furthest, furthest south they'll ever go. Well, we're further south than <laughs> Rainbow Beach. <laughs> Um, or folks like, a lot of folks know where uh, Chicago Vocational High School, CVS is, right? They're like, yeah, I know where CVS is at. I went there, or I used to party around there. And we're like, we're east of there, so keep going towards the lake. Um, and that community was anchored by the steel mills. Um, it was such a um, force in our community, like it was... Um, people worked there, uncles worked there. You like, if your dad didn't work there, like your dad's friend or his compadre or like your, your cuñado, your next door neighbor, everyone knew someone who worked in the mills. And it's such a uh, pivotal uh, part of that community. Yeah. My, um, for, for some reference or maybe like a good example um, of, of what this book is talking about. So my great grandparents um, came from Mexico um, in around the time of the Mexican Revolution. Um, and they were, there was people that came from Kansas City, Missouri that were recruiting folks on the border um, to come with promises of like um, a job and good pay and things like that for the railroad building. Um, so my great grandparents, um, they migrated to Kansas City, Missouri um, to work on the railroads, right? But then once that was done, they were sort of just like hanging out, like what's next? So then people from Chicago, from the steel, from South Chicago, from the steel mill areas came recruiting to folks at the railroads and they were like, hey, we're opening these new steel mills, um, come work and we're promising, you know, food and shelter and all that kind of stuff. So then they migrated to, um, uh, to South Chicago for work. So then I had um, great grandparents that worked at U.S. Steel and then um, uncles that ended up working at Republic Steel um, and... Uh, yeah, so that's sort of like a, fr a framing of like what this migration actually looked like. It was all for, for better jobs and, and work and things like that. Now, the conditions were absolutely horrible, um, especially in U.S. Steel and, and Republic Steel. Um, does the book get into any of the like work conditions of the, the steel mills? Yeah, so it, it definitely at the beginning goes into just 
what Mexicanos had to endure um, when they first arrived. And it talks, in not like too intensely, but it definitely highlights like worker abuse, right? Like what types of jobs Mexicanos were given, like basically the bottom of the barrel type of job, right? And how they were exploited for that work because they knew a, like they were gonna do the job because they desperately needed it, but then the likelihood that they were going to leave and go back to Mexico, understanding that they probably had gotten here through a connection like an engachista, right? Or, or they used all their money just to get here, the likelihood was they weren't going back, right? So I think they, it definitely highlights into like the exploitation of the workers, um, what kind of jobs they first had and then um, how they kind of like really organized and like resisted and like really used their community connections to move up. Um, and I think definitely for folks who have no understanding of that life, I think the book is instrumental to be like, to really um, give exposure to the conditions of like the job, but also like folks came and like had never been in a winter such as Chicago, right? Like uh, didn't understand what that was like, right? There wasn't a community here that folks just came into, you know, like us now, like, yeah, we're about to go get some tacos. And like you walk down the street, there's taquerias open. None of that existed. Um, so it definitely goes into that. And, and also I think one other piece that was really um, interesting was the housing piece, like what kind of housing they had. A lot of them lived on housing that was provided by the factories. Um, it talked a lot about like who were these people that first opened their homes to rent rooms to them and how like some other immigrants were willing to do that. And then how there were folks that were like, no, we're absolutely never going to rent to you. You're, you know, SOL kind of so to speak. What stood out to you? What do you remember um, in terms of, of the lessons learned, right? Like what, how long ago did you read this book? I, I just read it recently. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, B from, Bilo from Mi Gente. Shout out to Bilo. Uh, <laughs> Lit Review alumni. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he had seen Monica's post and was like, yeah, so what's up? Um, yeah, Karina would be great because that's her hood. Um, I think one of the most important things for me in reading it was this connection to what is happening now, right? Like first, um, I'm in a lot of spaces with Latinx uh, folks, Mexicano folks, uh, immigrants that have no understanding of how deep our roots are in the city. Um, or at least understand that, that we've been around for some time, but like when I'm like, yo, 19, early 1900s, they're like, what? Um, so um, I think in, in being in those spaces, like it's been so uh, important to understand that what we're facing now is nothing new, right? Like the jargon, the rhetoric that these right-wing white supremacist folks use is like the same mierda, right? That that they've been using forever. It's nothing new. Uh, this blaming of the other, right? For when, when economic times get hard in this country, like the excuse becomes the other, right? And the other very early on was like why Irish folks, you know, certain immigrant populations, and then it's forever and ever and probably ever will be black people, right, in this country, uh, according to them. And But the other changes 
but the rhetoric doesn't change, right? Um, sometimes it's it's very heavily like the the Mexicans and immigrants and those people, um, but it doesn't change. Um, and so one, it's I think important to realize that what we're up against and that that they keep using that rhetoric to scare people, uh, you know, to scare people about who the other is. Um, but also in this book, it's so important to realize our strength, right? And that our folks have been resisting for a hell of a long time and resisting as individuals, but also like understanding when we build together um, and we work together and organize together, we have wins. Um, and I think that that for me is the, is the biggest takeaway in this, right? Um, there's so many instances of like fierce women who um, just were like, look, we need to get things done. Like their family's coming and they don't have jobs. We're going to find jobs for them. Or like mutual forming mutual aid societies where they're like, there's a lot of people not prepared for winter. We're going to figure this out amongst our own, not wait till like the boss decides to, you know, help but we're gonna figure this out on our own and, and organize and make sure people are fed and, and prepared for the winter. So I think it, it both, it does a great job at understanding both, right? Giving us that context of what we're up against, but also how our gente have resisted, how we continue to resist, how uh, we create community, right, and fight. Yeah, and in um, the book, there's a section on community, and um, um, there's a subchapter on resistance. Is that sort of what you were mentioning, or is there more specific stuff in that section about uh, resistance, right? Like, what were they in resistance to besides, like, labor practices and, like, uh, housing issues, right? But, like, were there specific examples that they uh, sort of went into? Yeah, so... Yeah, obviously because of the steel mill conditions, right, there, there's resistance to that and individuals who would take their stand against, like, practices that the boss, uh, that the higher foreman, right, would, would try to do. Um, but there was also, I think it's also very important in the book, it highlights how there was resistance to this push to become Americanized, right, the Americanization of folks. And... It really made me think a lot about like my mom, who's been in this country forever. Like my mom and my dad both um, have been in South Chicago for over 40 years. And my mom speaks all Spanish. Like she understands English, can answer calls, can really curse you out if she needs to in English. But my mom was like, like, you know, why do I have to learn English? Uh, I, you know, I, I speak Spanish. I'm Mexicana, I was born and raised in Mexico. I'm proud of my, my heritage and my roots. And so it really helped me understand how this was nothing new, that there are a ton of people in South Chicago, all over the city, who have very strong ties to who they are, to their cultural roots, and who are like, I'm just going to learn enough English so that I can get by in this country. But the real truth is like, why? Right? Like, I'm Mexicana and this is the language and I'm not going to change because people think that that's how I should be now that I've arrived here. So I think there was really great examples of, of the resistance to that. There was a whole piece around the parks and around sports. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, Chicago prides itself on being the city of parks. Um, and I grew up in South Chicago, as I said, and I grew up in the parks. Like I, Besmer Park, Russell Square Park, Calumet Park. Like I was in programs there. I worked there. Our family had gatherings there. They were such a part of our upbringing 
And in reading this book, it, it shows examples of how like Mexicans were not wanted in those parks. Um, they would exclude them from different um, organized activities. Um, and then like folks are like, we're just gonna take over. Like there's an example of like a baseball game between two Mexican clubs in Washington Park, which is not even in South Chicago, but it's further in Washington Park. Yeah, shout out. <laughs> And there was like over 2,000 people at this game. And I was just blown away, like 2,000 folks at this. But it really shows like the, the, the importance of having those type of spaces, right? Spaces to, to work out, to enjoy green, <laughs> like in Chicago, right? Uh, trees and, and things like that were so, are so critical and so overlooked sometimes. Uh, does the book go into how South Chicago is now or does your own experience sort of tell you what were the trajectories of change that that one out, you know, what, what's the neighborhood like at this point? Um, so, yeah, that's where I felt like I want more because <laughs> um, it does an amazing job of going up to the 1940s. Um, so you get like um, like that, that historical base of how that community came to be. Um, but the, and, and it ties it into some of the, the immigrant rights work. Um, that was happening in the early 2000s because basically the argument he makes is this is why looking at this historical past is so important because we're still fighting these similar things and it's many years later and it's important to know the history of those communities. But my folks um, came to South Chicago, like I said, over 40 years ago. And um, so we grew up um, in a community that was still very much um, Mexicano. Um, and my parents uh, were very, um, were v I don't know if it was intentional or not. I mean, I think it was intentional. They were very um, uh, focused on making sure we understood our cultural roots, right? And that we had um, that we were anchored in who we were as Mexicanos. So, like, we took uh, ballet flocorico mexicano, um, we spoke Spanish, we were, like, at every Mexican Independence Day parade, we were in the parades, um, we were always around sort of activities um, that taught us about that. And um, I think, yeah, that, that's what I say, I want more because I think the years after, there was a lot of things that happened historically um, that I think would be really good to understand. Um, like, there are families in South Chicago that go back generations. And so I'm like, it'd be fascinating to interview some of these families to f see, like, what was happening during the 1960s, right, and 70s when, like, the Chicano movement really took off. What kind of role did it play in South Chicago? I know the, the sort of influence it's had in places like Pilsen, but um, it'd be fascinating to know, like, what was sort of the, the – um, how, how it like rolled on people, how people took it in, because I imagine in places like South Chicago, there was some conflict, right, between folks are like, we're not Chicano, we don't identify like that, like we're straight up Mexicanos. And, um, but I know it, it existed, um, like I think maybe in the early 2000s, my sisters and I uh, like discovered this poster, like this old poster, I don't know, in, in piles of my dad's paperwork, that was like a, for, uh, a poster for La Raza Unida party, which I know was very instrumental in the Southwest, 
but it was a poster that in and in my dad's like handwriting about a meeting that was happening for to promote La Raza Unida party, which was a party that ran electoral candidates. Um and uh, it was happening in South Chicago. And so I was like, whoa, like who was in that? I wanted to know that kind of stuff. Um, South Chicago has changed a lot. Um, probably in the last, I would say three decades. Yeah, something like that. So with the closing of US Steel, Republic Steel, right? The steel jobs, a lot of folks left. Um, Monica and I were also discussing like, there is some deep race stuff in <laughs> to unpack in South Chicago, well, everywhere, but in South Chicago, um, there is a lot of anti-blackness amongst the Mexicano community. And as black folks moved further and further south into that community, I think Mexicanos left. Um, like my folks, like I said, still live what's in that area, but they live on the east side. Um, and a ton of folks moved to Indiana. And I think despite the opportunities that exist for folks to really get into like, how do we get to this place where we hate each other? Like who is forcing that to happen, right? Um, it hasn't. And so uh, there is deeply rooted racism um, and I forced many folks to move. Um, I was also explaining to her though that it was interesting being raised there like in the early 80s, right? Like I understood early on that it was like the the Haitians, Jamaicans, and black, straight up black folks from here and and us against the rich white Polish kids <laughs> at the school. Like I think I was like, I remember being in third grade and being like, yo, these are my homies, right? And like you all are not. And and feeling like you all come and like flaunt your money and like, you know, and, and you know, back then money was like what? Like they had the coolest trapper keepers, right? Or school supplies, right? But it was like, we don't have that. Like we here understand what it's like, like when we go to Goblots, right? Shop at Goblots or Ventures there. And our mom's like, no, you can't get the fancy school supplies or you can't eat out because we're saving money because this is our reality. So it, it was, for me, early on, it was, it was really instrumental. Like, um, you know, I grew up around a lot of black folks. They were friends of mine. I remember just learning a lot about the culture and their experiences. And like I said, just feeling like, yeah, it's us. We're us versus them. <laughs> the haves versus the have-nots. Does the book get into um, policing in South Chicago at all? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely um, there are instances of, of policing um, and in particular um, and then and, and deportation and the role that both play, right, that the police and back then immigration, right, but now ICE uh, play in um, making sure they keep folks in their place, right, and also... Um, how they would interact um, and reinforce their work to deport people, um, to harass people, brutalize people. Um, so that's what I was saying earlier. Like, I think this is like in the early 1930s. Um, and it just gives example, an example, concrete example of um, like how the, the jargon that people were using, right, and how like they would use police force um, to ensure that, well, 
first there was like all the national stuff, right? Like this, we understanding that the Great Depression um, was about to happen and the, the economics, the, the, the economic impact, right, it would have on this country. And so that the other, right, like the fear of the other, blaming the other became really instrumental for them. Um, I think it's, yeah, I'm going to read a passage that kind of gives a little bit of a, of a background into what was happening and, and like the, the use, these words that they use and, and how they would police these communities. Um, so it says, in April of 1931, just four months before the garrison roundups in Chicago, the Los Angeles Times reported that former railroad trainman and current Secretary of Labor, William N. Doak, quote, ordered a non-spectacular but thorough drive to deport approximately 400,000 aliens said to be illegal residents of this country, unquote. Going after everyone who had, quote, no right to be here, quote, in order to give their jobs to Americans, Doak equated his deportation drive to a war in which the enemy was illegal immigrants, the majority of whom were Mexican. Secretary Doak or argued, some may say to deport these people is inhuman, but my answer is that the government should protect its own citizens against illegal invaders. This I propose to do with every weapon in my power, unquote. By using military terms such as weapons and invaders to describe his deportation campaign, Doak attempted to provoke the public to support his campaign out of a sense of urgency and fear. His language successfully agitated the general public to support his campaigns and inflamed tensions among immigrant, African-American, and Anglo-American communities. And so this is 1931, and I think that definitely that continues today. Um, almost similar words, right? Like there are rightful Americans and those that are not. And then using it to create this tension between the immigrant communities, Mexican communities, and black communities. And yeah, there was constant um, incidents of how police would round people up, um, would arrest people on like false charges, right? Or like very minor things, and then use that to deport them. Um, and I think it, like I said earlier, that it's so instrumental for us to understand that this is nothing new, that this continues today, right? I think there's a real tension in the Mexican community, Latinx community, because they're like, well, the police really help, right? Like, when there's this issue of gangbanging, we should call the police. They're going to come and help us. They're going to protect us. And I think when we really get to, when we start unpacking that, when we start giving concrete examples of like, hmm, are they really protecting us? Or are they protecting the interests of the wealthy, right? Are they protecting the interests of others? and really just harassing and brutalizing us and then using all this other stuff to justify that. Oh yeah, let me let me give you an example of how the police uh, protect the wealthy and and, and the and, and industrialization, right? Like in 1937, there was this um, Memorial Day massacre at Republic Steel, right? Folks yeah. were trying to unionize, and they were trying they were having like a, a Memorial Day picnic um, out, outside across the street from Republic Steel, which is. Um, where was it? 106th and no, what was it? It's like 106th and O maybe somewhere around there. Um, and um, so they were having a picnic and then after the picnic, and it was like families, children, you know, whatever. And after that, they wanted to march to the Republic Steel um, as, a, as a sign of, of power, right? Um, so then they, they march over there and as soon as they start marching, 
police, Chicago Police Department, um, starts uh, throwing tear gas, um, starts shooting at them, shooting into the crowd aimlessly, right? Like, like you know, with, with children around, kills about 10 people um, and arrests, you know, dozens and dozens. Um, and for, and beat, it just beats the shit out of everybody. And um, the really interesting piece of this that I, and I had made a piece of art around this, but the, the really interesting piece is that um, at that time, time 1937 Chicago Police Department did not own tear gas and they did not own batons yet and so right on on the tear gas canisters it said property of Republic Steel and then on the batons they also said property of Republic Steel um, so that was just like a, a mind-blowing example of how the police is just there to protect property wealth um, not there for the people um, it's just uh, since 1937 right um, and and beyond, and since since the, the since the policing started, since policing was created, right? Um, and then it's also interesting for me that I had said a little while ago, I was like, oh yeah, you know, what was ICE like back then? But ICE didn't exist back then, you know. <laughs> it's like ICE is such an it's such a new thing, and we don't. But we're so programmed to think, oh yeah, that existed forever, right? And it's like, no, actually, it was just police that were rounding us people up. Um, but yeah, so that that interesting. Yeah, totally, totally. I I, I think the same thing, and I think. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, I think it just, there are so many examples after example after example, and, and this book covers some of them, um, but throughout history where we've seen, like, the police have not been on our side, right, are not protecting us and serving us, but I think it just, they have, like, they, by the right, have sort of won this argument, right, they have, have won, like, that PR campaign that, that they indeed are good people and that they're here to serve and protect that people find it uh, really hard to say no that that's not what's happening and let's unpack some of that and I think um, it's really pivotal that we do it now I think because there are so many new instances right of people who are dying at the hands of police and it needs to be it needs to be addressed and unfortunately hasn't been as much so who do you think should read this book though and, and why I'm constantly in circles where people are like, yeah, they think like Mexicanos have been in Chicago maybe since the 60s or 50s. It was fascinating to me when I was in California, living in Oakland, California, um, during the large, massive immigrant rights uh, march in Chicago, right, where there was like, I don't know, well over half a million people out in the streets. And Mexicanos in California were like, uh there's Mexicanos in Chicago? Like, uh, you know, and I was like, are you really kidding right now? <laughs> like, I mean, like folks who consider themselves to be quote unquote woke, as we say nowadays, they'd be like, we never really knew that y'all were big. And I was like, we are not big. We are massive. Like we are huge um, in Chicago and now like the Chicago land area. Right. So I think it's really uh, this book is really important for folks who are trying to unpack our histories here in the city, um, for people who are doing organizing work and are like, what are different ways that people have resisted through the years, right? How did they organize? What kind of, um, how did community building come about? Um, how is it that Mexicanos who had no roots or ties to Chicago came in 1915? and survived and thrived and like there's full-blown communities now so i think definitely our gente you know uh 
would 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 really appreciate this book. Um, but I think it has many lessons for folks who are organizers, right? Like I constantly talk about, um, like my reality is that I'm a baseball mom. I spend a lot of time in baseball circles. Like I have to be able to use language and connect to people who are on that field with me, right? Many of whom are like sometimes even work for the police department, right? Like I cannot just think about organizing in circles that are woke people, right? Like, if I cannot have a conversation with, like, La Senora, who has had three boys on the baseball field, about why Rahm Emanuel should be, should not be mayor, right? Or why we need to organize, then I don't think it's true, right? Social justice work, like, we're excluding all these folks. So, um, so yeah, I think it, it the, the book gives us an amazing historical lens right and examples of how people resisted how baseball clubs were became important how newspapers became important having spaces to have social dances um parks all like contributed to building that community and resisting the americanization what is the um what is the connection between or the importance of historical documentation you know of our of our people um and 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 person and sharing personal narratives and, and first person stories um about our different experiences how what is the importance of that in our in our organizing spaces like how how do we how do we how do we utilize those as tools um right and you had mentioned like i need to be able to like talk to people outside of our circles right because if we're not doing that then what are we're just like you know ha having teachings with the same 10 people every 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 month right which i see happen a lot um so like how um, how do, how have you like as an example? How have you utilized um, history and 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 uh, like such as this book and and, and first person and personal narratives um, in in your organizing practice? Um, so interestingly enough, uh, we were at a, at the Mi Gente Escuelita recently, and um, there were different folks at the Escuelita. There were um, members of OCAD. Oh, little school. Yes, it, it technically means little school, but it was like a two-day teaching um, for folks. And um, in the teaching, it was pretty diverse because you had some um, folks who've been doing organizing work for a minute. Um, you had some new organizers. Then you had like um, folks from outside the Chicago area. You had uh, people like Genoveva Ramirez from OCAD. Um, who are older, um, who's an older Mexicana here and, and has been recently organizing. But, you know, when you look at her, you're like, like she's not an organizer, right? That people don't think that, right? That she's like your activist type of person. So the group was really diverse. And we had this discussion about, uh, we had an activity where we had to think about um, how we, it, pretending that if, if our movement was strong enough, how would we go about launching a political candidate? Like the importance of, of doing our organizing work both like within the current system, right, outside the system and against the system, right, which is a model from from um, Chile and and other movements in in um, South America, Latin America. Sorry, um, but the discussion was around was around Chuy Garcia was about Jesus Garcia, um, who recent who a few years back ran for mayor against Mayor Rahm Emanuel, right. 
And it, it was really interesting because, like, his name came up, like, let's think about Chewy and, and, and how Chewy ran for mayor, right? And so the, the some people were like, who is Chewy, right? Because they weren't from here. And other people were like, oh, God, Chewy Garcia, right? And then, and then like, Martin Unsueta uh, from OCAD and I were like, well, you know, no, let's, let's, like, really unpack Chewy, right? Because some folks just know him from the last mayoral election, um and the race he put up against Rom right and and have lessons both good and bad to take from that election right but Jesus Garcia came out of work that happened long before this election like he act, you know he was alderman and 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 like his campaign came out of workers' rights movement, right? That Rudy Lozano um, and lots of activists were instrumental in building in Pilsen. And so we were like, it's important that we know these lessons, that we understand what happened, so that we're not constantly repeating the same crap, right? Like like mistakes, but also that we learned, right? So in, in the instance of like some of these folks that came out from the early 70s and 80s, there were people who were really, who really understood organizing, right? Who really understood it can't be just the 10 same old people, right? Like we have to be thinking about how do we build with people in the tortilla factory? How do we be build with people in the parks, in the schools? And so in that case, in that very specific case of La Escuelita, people were like, whoa, we really should do like a teaching or like read a book about Mexicanos from back in the day. And by back in the day, they meant the 60s. And I was like, no, dude, I had just finished reading Steel Barrio. And I was like, no, no, we need to do it from like the 1915 um, and start there. So we're getting to that time where the podcast episode is almost over. Um, so I have one more question um, before we close out. And that is, um, you know, the book talks a lot about um, how community, um, like just communities on the ground, how they just work together to, to meet people's basic needs, right? And so tying that to our current moment right now with, with the DACA decision just being made um, and, and our, our communities are, are, are coming together. I see, you know, I see BYP 100, I see Mi Gente, I see um, um, organized communities against deportations coming together, you know, talking about how to defend each other. Um, so what are some, what are some ways that you can share with us that we can share with our audience around how can communities come together right now, especially in this next month, um, around supporting folks um, with that are undocumented. Right away, um, impressing for undocumented folks. Well, I should say not undocumented folks, but documented folks. Right, um, there are folks that are going to have to reapply and need that money. The, it's not cheap. It's like five hundred dollars or more, and. Um, so I think there are folks who might have it in their means, right, to pitch in and to help. Um, I think that that needs to happen immediately. Um, I think there are folks all over um, the city, the country, that are really uh, organizing to make sure that our communities are defended, right? And so making sure folks know what they can do to resist if ice is on your block or if ice is parked outside the school or if ice is you know rose up at your job um so i think that that connecting to people like organized communities against deportation is going is instrumental in learning what to do right what your rights are and and, and how to organize with people on your block or people in your work um i think the folks from um, west suburban action project that are known as paso 
um, are like working heavily on making sure that anybody who can um, apply or reapply to DACA does so immediately. And so reaching out to PASO um, and there's a new group um, that I think has been forming called Protection for All. So um, I think it's led I think it's like a coalition. Um, well, actually, I'm not 100% yeah. sure. I, d I don't want to say 100%. I know that it's spearheaded by um, um, documented and undocumented um, young folks that are at universities, that are in the communities. It's supported heavily by educators, folks that are working at different universities. Um, but just a lot of folks who are like, you know, DACA was great, and it and it opened the doors and allowed folks to do things they had never dreamed of doing. But we really need to stop this rhetoric of how dreamers, right? The rhetoric of dreamers and how some people are deserving of of getting of being able to live here, and um, and like criminalizing parents, right? Like saying like, oh, if you were three years old and brought to this country, you know, you, you don't have any blame. You don't, you shouldn't be blamed. You shouldn't feel guilty, right? You shouldn't be punished because your parents did that to you, right? And so I think Protection for All, along with OCAD, along with Mi Gente, are saying that rhetoric has got to stop. Like, we're grateful that our parents brought us to this country and they did so for different reasons. Um, but criminalizing them and making us to be out to be deserving is not going to help. Um, so I think, you know, there are folks who might be listening who are like, well, I'm not sure how to get involved. Um, I think there are multiple ways. I think if you're somebody who just doesn't have the time, as people like to say, then cough up some cash, right? Like sacrificing Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks or whatever it is you drink for a few times a month is going to help somebody out. Um, and I, th I, think, I think in this book, it's, it's one of the takeaways, right? That there were average wives, mothers who were like, you know, we have a family coming and they don't have coats. So we're all going to figure out how to get these families some coats, right? We're going to knock on doors. We're going to go demand this from, from different people, from like banks, right? Like there were people who were like, these banks are really prospering off of Mexicanos in South Chicago. So yeah, the banks, they got to cough up money for some of these basic needs that our, our people have. Um, I think in the end, like the reality and the book does an amazing job at doing this is understanding we all have a role to play. Like we cannot just afford to sit back and say, mm, this doesn't impact me. It impacts us all. And as Mexicanos, whether you were born here or your grandparents were born here, like we owe it to all of our people, our ancestors, our gente, past and current to fight like hell against the current administration and to ensure that everybody is protected. So we're at that time, and I want to say thank you again. This was really interesting and very timely. Uh, so the book, again, is Steel Barrio, The Great Mexican Migration of South Chicago, 1950 to 1940. Definitely pick it up, read it. Uh, but can you close this out with a passage uh, that you really love that represents the book? Thank you. The history of Mexican South Chicago matters. It matters because it illustrates how resistance and organization can help an immigrant community grow into a vibrant and powerful part of the larger local culture and society. Mexicans in South Chicago countered efforts by Americanization proponents to eliminate Mexican cultural practices and celebrations. They learned English only to the extent necessary to advance economically and created organizations that supported public displays of cultural unity. 
Mexicans negotiated within Americanization programs by learning what they felt they needed to survive and persist while being cognizant of the fact that many assimilationists expected complete Americanization. What reformers saw as their failure to take advantage of the resources offered or to enact the lessons supposedly learned about how to be American were in reality deliberate acts of resistance by Mexicans in South Chicago. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!